Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Exodus 7 through 13, the 10 plagues and trying to get Israel out of Egypt. God's going to tell Moses to deliver them. So we saw last week that there is this moment between the pain and suffering imposed upon us and Deliverance Day. And today's message is that the Lord will, in fact, deliver us from our challenges with a mighty hand. That mighty hand is here. And I love how it begins, starting in chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders. He's introducing a great doctrine that I want to spend some time on, this multiplying signs and wonders. It's the law of increasing witnesses that God increases in severity as an act of kindness. He is very serious about freeing Israel from bondage, and he follows a law of increasing witnesses. Let me show you a modern-day example of this same thing. I have a wonderful 10-year-old son who, when he was a younger boy, was somehow fascinated with knives. He just had this fascination with knives, and the larger the knife, the more he was fascinated. One day, he was sitting at the kitchen table while I was doing the dishes. And I had opened up the dishwasher and pulled out the bottom rack, and there was the large butcher knife. The largest knife in our house was sitting right there in the front of the dishwasher. And I could, out of the corner of my eye, I could see that it caught his attention. And it's like a homing beacon went off, and oh my goodness, there's a knife over there. And I could tell that Keegan was going after that knife. So he got voice number one. As soon as I knew what was going on, Keegan got voice number one. And voice number one is relatively calm. Keegan, no, I know what you're thinking. Don't. Stay right there. He ignored voice number one and got down from the table which meant he needs voice number two. Now, you can imagine that voice number two is a little bit louder, a little bit more stern. A loving father is now getting very concerned. And now voice number two is more like Keegan, very different than the calm Keegan, no. But he ignored voice number two and kept walking towards the dishwasher. And now he starts to reach out towards the knife. Now I'm yelling. Voice number three is at the top of my lungs. I'm shouting because I love him. And what he's about to do could cause him great harm. And I don't want that. He ignored voice one. He ignored voice two. So now he gets the loudest voice I can utter. And I am deliberately trying to startle him and stop him from what he's doing. Now, if he ignores voice number three, is there a voice number four? Can I yell louder? Can I startle him with a sharper voice? I can't. So now voice number four isn't a voice at all. It's my actions. It's me running over there and grabbing that little hand. And that's going to scare a little boy, isn't it? My actions are going to scare him. 
But can you imagine his older brother sitting at the bar watching this whole thing? Now, normally, boys get upset when dads start to yell. But his older brother is not concerned because his older brother knows exactly why dad is yelling. It's because Keegan is reaching for a knife. We need to be the older brother who understands why Heavenly Father is yelling more and more loudly. We need to understand when the earthquakes come and the lightning comes and the tempests come and the waves of the sea heaving themselves. And instead of fear, what our children need to see in us is, oh, I know what he's doing. I understand what Heavenly Father is doing in our day because the world has rejected the first couple of voices. And now he's getting more serious. That's what we need to see this week in Come, Follow Me, that we are led by a loving Father who doesn't want to destroy and will warn increasingly more and more loudly as that pain and destruction approach. The Lord wants to save Israel. And he's going to do it with mighty miracles. But look at the progression of those miracles. Let me just walk you through a brief summary of some of these plagues. He's going to start with the water to blood, kind of an attention-getting plague to say, look, are you ready for this, Pharaoh? It is interesting that in verse 24, they could still get water. How do they get it? They actually have to work for it. They have to do some digging. And so this is certainly annoying, but it's not going to kill you. You just got to go dig a hole. And if if you think about Egypt, we've got this massive Nile running through it. The water table's pretty high, so you're probably not digging too deep. But there it is. That's that first plague. And by the way, we have a slide for pretty much every one of them. You can just use some of these images and the scriptures right there, and then there's a picture depicting it. Yeah. But now, a plague of frogs. He's not hurting them. He's not destroying their crops yet. Frogs don't destroy. Frogs don't bite and inflict and cause diseases. Frogs are just icky. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a park where there's like a river coming through it or a stream coming through it, and your children find a frog. Have you ever noticed the first reaction of children to a frog? They're just scared. They're startled. They're, ooh, and then by the end of the time you're there, what are they doing, Mike? They're playing with them. They're playing with the frog. These are harmless creatures. When I was a kid, I used to collect them and put them in like a big plastic ice cream container, and then I thought I could keep them. (laughs) And by the end of a couple days, they weren't doing so well. And so I remember as a kid, they were really, you were just really intrigued by these little critters. And that first reaction is kind of startled, but these are gentle creatures that aren't there to destroy So after the frogs come a plague of lice. So he goes from frogs to lice. He's not hurting them. He's just annoying them. From lice, he goes to flies. Again, no pain here, just annoyance. But then the plagues of annoyance don't work. So then he starts to increase. He starts to destroy the cattle, not any of them. He just destroys their labor force. And then comes boils. And then the boils are replaced by hail. The purpose of the hail is to take out their crops. We're going to see that the hail ruins their flax and their barley, but it doesn't destroy the wheat and the rye. That is what the locusts will take out. After the locusts, He really only has one more plague, and that's death. 
But before death ever comes, notice how many times in the scriptures, before death comes or somehow associated with death is darkness. It's like he sends them to time out. It's like he's saying, I only have one more plague here and I really want to avoid it, but you're making decisions that are causing me to not be able to avoid it. So he sits them in darkness in time out for three days and they feel that darkness. And then when that one doesn't work, then comes death. But even then, it's only death of the firstborn. Had there been another plague, if there had been an 11th plague, it would have been death of all the Egyptians. Do you see that? Our Heavenly Father does not jump to severe consequences. He goes through a series of increasing plagues to say, look, I will be just but I want to make sure you have ample opportunity to listen when the severity is less. And so wise people listening to Heavenly Father say, I don't need more than the frogs. The frogs are enough to tell me that his hand is in this, and I don't want to get all the way to the end of the consequences. As a side note, Tim Ballard wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, and he kind of talks about this, and it's his opinion that once Abraham Lincoln believed that if we're going to win this war, we have to have the power of heaven, and if we want the power of heaven, we have to enact the Emancipation Proclamation. We have to free the slaves if we want the powers of heaven, and his contention is once Abraham Lincoln makes that choice, that the powers of heaven helped the Union win the victory. Now, I remember reading his book going, okay, there's something to this, right? I mean, the frogs have come. We're in the middle of war. We're losing the war. And the theory that Tim Ballard makes is that Abraham Lincoln was exposed to the Book of Mormon. Now, you have to read his book and decide for yourself. Certainly, I don't know. None of this is provable in scholarship. We can't go in history and see this you know, exactly as he theorizes. But we do know that once the Emancipation Proclamation comes into effect, that things started to shift. And so anyway, it's just interesting to read his take on this. Yeah. So in 2 Nephi 25, verse 9, Nephi is talking about the Jews and their destruction. And he says this, never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you how in-depth that warning becomes. So before the Lord destroys, he sends warning after warning after warning, and the warnings get louder and louder and louder. So I would suggest we look at this week as a pattern of what he is as well as what will happen in our day. The Lord is going to free the righteous from the wicked. We are once again going to have an Egypt-like experience. And the Lord is warning the earth. See, the earth is going to change into a terrestrial state. During the millennium, this earth is going to be terrestrial, which means anything that is not at least terrestrial has to leave. You cannot be on this earth during the millennium when it becomes terrestrial if you are a telestial being. And so the Lord's is warning. He sends warning after warning after warning. Now, we see this law of increasing witnesses all over the place. One of my favorite places to show it is in the Book of Mormon with the city of Ammoniah. 
Now, in the end, the city of Ammoniah is going to be destroyed. The Lamanites are going to come in and slaughter the city of Ammoniah because of their wickedness. And the Lord does not want that to happen. So notice in the city of Ammoniah, the very first warning was Alma. Alma the prophet, who's just released himself as being chief judge so he can focus on the ministry, he is sent to Ammoniah. And they reject him. And they reject him saying things like, who is God that would send only one witness? And it's as if the Lord said, okay, I hear you. And he sends a greater witness. Who was the greater witness the Lord sent after the prophet? I mean, who's a greater witness than the prophet? You can't get more keys. I don't think you could preach a more fiery sermon than Alma preached. He preached the sermon that a prophet preaches. But the Lord sent a greater witness. He sent Amulek. Now, not greater in authority, not greater in power, but greater to them because he was one of them. He lived in Ammoniah. He was one of their own. And for credibility's sake, that was a greater witness to them. So the Lord sent Alma, and then he sent Amulek. And when they reject Amulek, you remember, it was Zeezrom who was kind of the chief of all of their bad guys. He was the chief opposition who was speaking for all of those opposed to Alma and Amulek. So after they reject Amulek, the Lord's going to send another witness, a greater witness than even Amulek. And we see the conversion of Zeezrom. The main bad guy, the one guy that was contending against Alma and Amulek, is now converted in front of them and is contending for them. He's pleading for them. Listen to these men. I was wrong. They are right. Now talk about a powerful witness. Think about what the Lord has sent to Ammoniah. He sent Alma, and then he sent one of their own, and then they see the conversion of one of their own, their own, the conversion of Zeezrom. And when they reject Zeezrom, the Lord has one more. The Lord always ends with the earth bearing her testimony. And so the bad guys go into the prison to harm Alma and Amulek, and the prison walls come tumbling down. And the whole city can hear it. That witness was not for the bad guys that were in the prison. That witness was for the rest of the city. They hear the rumbling. They come running and out walk Alma and Amulek, saved from the destruction of the prison that consumed all the other people that went in. Now, do the people listen to that final witness? Do the people listen to the earth? They do not. Now, the Lord has spoken as loudly as he can. He sent multiple witnesses. He doesn't have a louder voice than the one he's spoken with. Therefore, now come the Lamanites and destroy the city. The Lord gave them how many chances? Let me give you one more example. In Doctrine and Covenants section 88, the Lord is going to show this same law of increasing witnesses. It started in 1820 with the testimony of a 14-year-old boy who came to the world and said, hey, the world is going to change and you need to repent. And for the most part, the world has rejected that 14-year-old boy's testimony. And so the Lord says in verse 81, 
section 88, verse 81, I sent you out to testify and warn the people, and it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. So after Joseph and the prophets, after Joseph and Brigham and President Nelson, after the prophets have warned the world, the Lord's going to send the common people, and we're going to testify to our neighbors. It's the Amulex. Hey, I'm one of you. I'm your neighbor. You know me. And yes, I have a testimony that this is true. And then I believe there's going to be the conversion of the Zeezrums. I think the Lord is going to leave the world without some excuses when some very significant people are going to be converted. And it's going to be the conversion of the Zeezrums that will leave a lot of people without excuse because they're going to say, look, I, I testify. I fought against this for a long time, but I testify that this is true. And if the world rejects all of the earthly witnesses, the the first couple of witnesses, notice in section 88, verse 88, after your testimony cometh wrath and indignation, for after your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes that shall cause groanings in the midst of her. Verse 90, and then come the testimony of the voice of thunderings, the voice of lightnings, the voice of tempests the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. In another section of the Doctrine and Covenants, he's going to speak of other voices. If you're interested, I'm turning to section 43, verse 25. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants? That's the first round. The mouth of 19-year-old missionaries who are going out and knocking on doors and saying, I believe. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants, and by the ministering of angels, and by my own voice, and by the voice of thunderings, and by the voice of lightnings, and the voice of tempests, and the voice of earthquakes, and great hailstorms, and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind, and by the great sound of a trump, and by the voice of judgment, and by the voice of mercy all the day long. And by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of the eternal life and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but you would not. You didn't listen to any of the voices. So do you understand what Heavenly Father is doing in our day? When you see calamities coming and you see earthquakes and it seems a little scary to you, do you understand that the Lord is sending an increase in witness to leave the world without excuse? You know, Bryce, I think there's another example we can look at. I love to look at the parallels between Nephi's experiences and what we read in Moses' account in Exodus. And so there's some really interesting connections between killing and fleeing. I mean, he's killing and fleeing in 1 Nephi 4, and we read Exodus 2 where Moses has to flee. There's a mountain motif going on in chapter 11 of 1 Nephi and him speaking with God as Moses does. There's a lot of stuff going on with unexpected callings, like Nephi is just not of high birth and neither was Moses, but they were called by God. And power over the elements just as Moses part of the Red Sea, Nephi has the Liahona, which clearly has power over the elements. There's plots of rebellion. There's traveling through the wilderness. They're both going to a promised land. There's even charges that Nephi or Moses are trying to take over. I mean, in 1 Nephi 16, verse 38, or in Exodus 2, we read these accusations that they're trying to take over. But also, Nephi is doing all those things Bryce is talking about with the law of witnesses. Yeah. 
Do you remember what got Layman and Lemuel to go get the plates? It was a lecture from their dad. Their dad lecturing them was able to soften their hearts to the point that they went to Jerusalem to get the plates. But later on the boat, when they have Nephi tied up, their dad is going to lecture them again, and this time it won't work. Their hearts are too hardened. So the Lord needs a louder voice at that moment than the voice he gave earlier. Yeah, the pleading of the daughters of Ishmael soften their hearts, right? And then we see that when they're crossing the ocean, in First Nephi 18, we read that nothing but the power of God, which threatened them with destruction, could cause them to actually let Nephi go. And in that narrative, and it's kind of just almost passed over, is the image of Nephi's wife pleading. And she's crying in verse 19 of chapter 18. And she plays the role of what I would say is Miriam. We'll get to this next time when we cover Exodus 15, but the song of the sea is led by Miriam and the women as they go forth and they lead in this battle against chaos. Because Pharaoh kind of represents this chaos. And so Nephi uses those law of witnesses to show that they're increasing. And it's only at the point where they're going to die in the sea in 1 Nephi 18. It's at that point when they say, okay, we're going to untie you. So that's really good. Yeah, I love it. So now we begin to see a very clever technique that you're going to see in our day, and that is the world's attempt to explain away the miracle. And so we find that here. Moses throws his rod down, it becomes a serpent. And the world basically says, that's not impressive. So Pharaoh calls for his wise men, his sorcerers, his magicians, and they do the same thing. But what's funny is that Aaron's serpent now eats up the other serpents. Let me give you one more example. Do you remember the great sign in 3 Nephi where the sun went down and it didn't get dark? That was a pretty marvelous hand. That was a miraculous hand. But notice in verse 22 of 3 Nephi chapter 1, it came to pass from this time forth, there began to be lying sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. They begin to try and justify them and explain them away. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, the people began to forget the signs and wonders which they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at the signs or a wonder from heaven, insomuch that they began to harden their hearts. So don't be surprised when you hear the Lord's voice get louder if the world tries to explain it away. Yeah. So if we read this with an ancient lens— one thing we see is that this is a smackdown of the gods, meaning that the Egyptians have their gods and Moses has his god. And the ancients viewed the world this way, that every nation kind of had their god. A lot of times this is called monolatry, this idea that, hey, you have your god and I have mine and we're kind of acknowledging these powers. Later, Christians will read this story and they will see not that it's the power of an Egyptian god, but that the thing that's making the Egyptians' rod to turn into a serpent isn't a god, but it's the devil. And so in Christianity, they'll go back and reread the text. And then in Latter-day Saint theology, we kind of have that same reading. And so Robert J. Matthews said this about the Egyptians' ability to cause their miracle. 
He said, since the devil lives in a non-mortal existence, he is able to perform signs and miracles. However, being limited to his own sphere and being unsaved himself, he has power to deceive, but not to save or redeem. The Lord warned us when he said, he that seeketh signs shall see them, but not unto salvation. And so just know that Robert J. Matthews has addressed this, and so has President Joseph Fielding Smith, where he said that the Savior declared that Satan has the power to bind bodies of men and women and to afflict them. And so if Satan has the power to bind bodies, he surely must have power to loose them. It must be remembered that Satan has great knowledge and thereby can exercise authority and to some extent control the elements when some greater power does not intervene. And so I like those comments about this, that the Latter-day Saint reading of how did the Egyptians do this is that they use the power of darkness. But I think from an ancient perspective, if we lived in Israel during the time of the monarchy and we were telling these stories, we would see this as a smackdown, like a WWF smackdown between Jehovah and the gods of Egypt. And we even put it in the slides, a really interesting slide that comes from this idea that each one of the 10 plagues could be an attack against a specific Egyptian god, showing that Jehovah is more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. And one thing I think we can make definitively say, there will always be, no matter what the sign and wonder from heaven, there will always be an attempt to minimize it and to, to take away the awe and wonder of God's miracle. So that one doesn't soften Pharaoh's heart. He hardens his heart. He's not going to let the people go. So now we begin the plagues upon all of Egypt and all of the land. So now with that in mind, let's take a few minutes with each one of these plagues, and I want you to see God's ability to protect the righteous. As we increase in severity, watch his protective hand is also increased in what happens in Goshen, where the Israelites are. So chapter 7, verse 17, the Lord says, all right, smite the waters, and they shall be turned to blood. Now, this was not just that the Nile was turned to blood. Verse 18, all the fish that are in the river are going to die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will loathe to drink of the water of the river. But then he also extends it in verse 19 upon the streams, the rivers, the ponds, the pools of water, that they may become blood, that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. The Lord is foreshadowing this is my warning that I don't want to shed your blood, but that is where we will go if you choose not to listen, Pharaoh. So the whole water is turned to blood. Now, do they imitate it? Verse 22, were the magicians of Egypt able to somehow replicate or at least explain away the miracle? Yes. In verse 22, it says the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. So once again, Pharaoh is not impressed He doesn't soften his heart, and he doesn't let the Israelites go. What's interesting is that in the book of John, John is going to take seven of these plagues and invert them. And so the first miracle John has Jesus doing is turning water into wine. John, I believe, John's reading this story of Exodus, and after he looks back on the life of Jesus, he sees some parallels. That's right. That now leads us to the next plague, the frogs. So chapter 8, verse 2, 
I will smite the borders with frogs. Again, they're not dangerous. They're not deadly. They're not going to bite, but they're just going to be everywhere. Verse three, the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into the ovens and into the kneading troughs. And they're icky and they're kind of They freak us out a little bit, but again, they're not hurting them. It's an attention-getting, annoying plague. Now, were the magicians able to replicate this or at least explain it away somehow? Were they able to minimize the awe and wonder of the miracle? Yes. Verse 7, the magicians did so with their enchantments. So again, they've minimized the awe of the miracle, and so Pharaoh hardens his heart. By the way, if I'm Pharaoh, I'm saying, you know what I would like you to do with your enchantments? Remove them. Because we kind of see the same thing with the lice. When the lice are made, and then in verse 18, it says the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there was lice upon man and beasts. The way I'm reading verse 18 is they could bring the lice, but they couldn't get rid of it. (laughs) I think that's funny. And when Pharaoh does ask Moses to take the frogs away, Moses says, okay, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll take the frogs away. And then he says in verse 10, Be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. Always these are signs and wonders of God's majesty and his ability to save us. So that leads us to the lice. Verse 16, smite the dust and it will become lice. And I know as soon as I say that, you're all starting to itch, right? All of us are just all of a sudden starting to be uncomfortable. And the thought of lice is annoying. So you can imagine lice all over them and all over their creatures, all over their cattle. And so verse 17, they smote the dust and it became lice in man, in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land. Now, just like Mike said, were the magicians able to replicate it? They could bring it, but couldn't make it go away. And so at some point, the magicians now become advocates for Jehovah. And the magicians say to Pharaoh in verse 19, This is the finger of God. Now Pharaoh's getting more and more testimonials. So so this is the Zeezrom, right? The magicians are now convinced and telling Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But unfortunately, does the lice work? Frogs and lice? Can God annoy Pharaoh into letting the people go? No. So now we're going to step it up a notch. We've got one more annoying plague. So in verse 21 of chapter 8, the Lord sends swarms of flies. And we've all done that, right? The annoying, Have you ever tried to sleep when a fly keeps landing on you? Can you imagine your house filled with swarms of flies? But now, again, we start to see the mighty hand of God. In verse 22, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I will put a division between my people and thy people. So again, I remind you that as the Lord's voice gets louder and louder, he is able to protect the righteous. He will show his mighty hand to the wicked, but he will begin at some point to sever and to protect those who are already listening to his voice and don't need to hear the severity of this warning. So he separates Goshen and Egypt. 
How grievous was it? Verse 24, there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and all the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. It does initially. He says, go, go ahead and leave. Now Pharaoh starts to say, okay, go. This is really bad. Go. But as soon as the problem is gone, He's not learning the lesson. As soon as the flies are gone, he changes his mind and says, no, you can't go. So Pharaoh is not listening to the louder and louder voices. And right at the end of the part with the flies, Moses says, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. There's a few times in the Exodus narrative where he's approaching Pharaoh and he doesn't approach with, hey, we want to go permanently. He says, let us just go for three days. And a lot of commentators have spoken a lot about this, trying to wrap their brain around, okay, why does he say this? You know, why is he saying this since what he's really after is to let him go permanently. And they ask questions like, why not make the legitimate demand up front? And in the commentaries, they talk about this idea of lying or dissimulation for the sake of a higher good. In other words, that peace is considered to be more important than the goal of truth. Now we see some of this with the she is my sister motif in Genesis. We see this with Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives, We see this with Nephi when he approaches to get the plates. And in some areas of the Middle East, they call this takia, or it's also called ketman. And it's the idea that you are not obligated to tell the whole story to your enemy. What are you obligated to do? Give them enough information so that the higher good can take place. Jesus himself was a ketman master. He would be asked a question And he could give the whole truth, but it would just blow them away. So what does Jesus do? He parses out the truth in packets. He gives them just enough. One poet once wrote, truth must be given gradually because it is like light. And if it is given all at once, it will cause all to go blind. And so it's dealt out in bits or in packets. And we kind of see this with even Joseph Smith's experience in the first vision, where he says at the end, after he talks about the vision of the father and the son, he says, and many more things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. And so that's kind of how I take verse 27. I I call it Ketman, or you can call it Takiyah. He's giving Pharaoh just enough information. And then he's letting the plagues do the talking. In other words, Pharaoh This isn't really about you and me. This is between you and God, and you've got to figure this out. So I know verse 27 is difficult. Uh, There's other verses that say kind of the same thing. In chapter 5, verse 3, which we covered last time, but he says, let us go, we pray thee, three days journey into the desert to sacrifice unto the Lord our God. So Moses says this a few times, but really what Moses wants is what God wants, which is to liberate Israel. So Although this is kind of complicated, or it can be kind of complicated, it it need not be if we just understand that this idea of giving out the truth in packets isn't something that just Moses is doing or Abraham, but even Jesus, and even in the restoration, these kinds of things happen historically. Okay, so now we're going to go to chapter 9, pestilence. So now the Lord is done with annoying. Annoying didn't work. He tried annoying. He tried frogs, and he tried lice, and he tried flies, and the message didn't come through. 
The Lord gave them every opportunity to change with a minor message. So now the voice gets louder, and now he starts to cause and inflict pain, not just annoyance, but pain. And he's going to start with their workforce. He's going to start with the cattle. And so in verse 3 of chapter 9, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, upon the horses and the asses and the camels and the oxen and the sheep. There shall be a very grievous moraine. But again, verse 4, the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. There shall none die of all that is the children of Israel's. In other words, the Lord's going to protect the righteous while he speaks more harshly to those who are not hearing his voice. And again, verse 5, the Lord appointed a set time. There will be moments where the Lord will warn us of a coming danger. Do you see the role of prophet here? Do you see the future role of prophet? So there was a set time and they were able to protect the cattle. But all of the cattle of Egypt died, and in verse 6, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And when Pharaoh saw that the Egyptian cattle were dead and the Israelite cattle were not, made him angry. Instead of softening his heart, it angers him. He's missing the message here. Now there's death. It's not human death, but now there's death. And you see where I'm going, Pharaoh, but he didn't. He didn't see where he was going, which now leads to the very next one. Now he is hurting human beings, but he's not going to kill them. A boil is not deadly. It's painful. A blain is not deadly. It's painful, but it's certainly not going to kill them. So in verse 9, he says, smite the dust and it shall become a boil breaking forth with blains. Now, verse 11, which is funny that they throw this in. Not only could the magicians not replicate it, but the magicians are severely affected by it, and they come pleading unto Pharaoh. The magicians are now becoming the Zeezrom again and pleading for Pharaoh to do something. But again, in verse 12, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and the pain caused by the boils and the blains is not going to make a difference. He's not listening. Now, before we leave this plague, notice the Lord speaks through Moses to Pharaoh and says in verse 16, in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Do you see that reference to the Abrahamic covenant? I have to free this people. I will free Abraham because I promised them protection because they're going to make my name known in all the earth. There's just a reminder that the blessings that he is pouring out upon the Israelites are because they're going to live a responsibility. I just wanted to point that out and remind you of the Abrahamic covenant. That now leads us to the next plague, hail mingled with fire. So in verse 18, I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. I love what happens next. He says to the Israelites, send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field, 
For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, and shall not have been brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. And it seems to me that that was even given to the Egyptians, that that warning came from Moses even to the Egyptians, because it says in verse 20, he that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. Now, don't you suppose there were some Egyptians and some of Pharaoh's servants were starting to get the message. They are hearing the warning. And there were some among Pharaoh's servants who followed prophetic counsel and pulled their cattle in, and their cattle were saved. I think that's a good reading because later in Exodus, we read that a mixed multitude left. And my reading of mixed multitude is going to be not just Israelites. So some people are hearing the voice, but some people are not. And so the hail comes... Verse 23, there's thunder and hail, and we know that a storm like that is going to bring lightning, and things are going to catch on fire. So there's thunder and hail and fire, and it's destroying the crops. End of verse 23, it rained hail upon the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous. End of verse 25, the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field. Now, what was it time to harvest in verse 31? The flax and the barley are going to be ruined because they're about to be produced. And so the hail takes out the flax and the barley, but the wheat and the rye had not yet grown up. And so the Lord took out some of their crop, not all. Do you see that increasing witness? But they won't listen when the hail comes and the fire burns them. Even though for a time being, Pharaoh says, it is enough. But then he hardens his heart again, and he won't let them go. In Egypt, flax was normally sown at the beginning of January and was in bloom three weeks later. Barley would be sown in August and harvested in February. So those are early crops. Flax was grown for its linen and fiber, which was made into yarn, woven into cloth, and then bleached. And so the linen-making industry, which was based on this flax, was a really big deal in the economy of Egypt. Now, rye is in reference to emmer. It's a species of wheat. And so those two crops, wheat and emmer, were less vulnerable than the flax and barley. We're probably talking about an early spring plague, which kind of fits with this whole narrative because in Exodus 12, that's the Passover and the Passover is held in the spring. So that's the time period we're at when those crops are out, the flax and barley, but not the wheat and rye. Now, if you go to verse 27 of chapter nine, this is the first time Pharaoh is actually admitting fault. He says, I've sinned, the Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. This is the very first time when he's actually admitting that he's doing something wrong. Yeah. He's starting to wake up, but he's not softened enough to let them go. He's admitting that he's made a mistake, but he's not going to lose his slate. He's not there yet. He's going to keep them. So now we move on to chapter 10, and we start to preface what the Lord's going to do with the Passover in chapter 12. We start to say to the children of Israel that this mighty hand needs to be remembered. So the Lord tells Moses, among what he's going to say to Pharaoh, I think what he's saying to Moses is, Moses, verse 2, you need to tell your son and your son's sons and all your grandchildren, and this story needs to be repeated many times, what I did in Egypt. And my signs, which were done among them, that ye, I think he's speaking to the Israelites here, 
that ye may know that I am the Lord thy God. We need to remember the marvelous hand of God. So Moses goes in and quoting the Lord says, how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? And so he's going to pour out the next plague. Now, there's a chance that if you let us go now, you'll have crops in the fall. But if you don't, we're going to take out the future crops as well. And so he sends the locusts. And the locusts are everywhere. It says the whole earth was covered like with a darkness, like we've never seen. And the whole purpose, end of verse 5, is that the locusts are going to eat everything that remaineth, even our future crop. You're going to suffer now, and you're going to suffer for a long time. Don't do this. Pharaoh. But he doesn't listen, and so the locusts come. But even in verse 7, notice the Amuleks and the Zeezrums are coming to Pharaoh. The other witnesses, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? How long are you going to do this, Pharaoh? He's getting witnesses from his own people begging him to let them go, and yet he won't. Now, this time, he calls for Moses in haste and says, Now, therefore, forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So, even though Pharaoh shows here signs of I want this to end. He still doesn't let the Israelites go. So now we have a plague of darkness where they sit in darkness and think about it. Once again, in verse 23, there's a sever here. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And again, it doesn't work. So now we have one more plague. Notice the Lord's pleading. I don't want to do this. Chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, yet I will bring one more plague. Do you sense that I don't want to? I sure wish we didn't have to come to this. And he says in verse 4, at midnight, all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, all the way to the firstborn of his servants, even the firstborn of the animals. Then the sever, verse 7, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue that ye may know that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So now the Lord is going to prepare the Israelites to be spared this plague, that their firstborns will not die. And now the Lord's going to institute the Passover. The Passover is a big deal. The final plague that we read about of these 10 plagues is the destroying angel that will kill the firstborn. And so the families in Israel are commanded to take a perfect lamb and to sacrifice it and to use the blood of the lamb to mark their doors and the doorposts and the lintels so that the destroying angel will pass by them. And those Israelites that followed these instructions, them and their children would be saved. They would be, as the text says, passed over. The Egyptians, many of them, didn't follow the commands of the Passover, and so their children were killed, even Pharaoh's. In the 29th verse of Exodus 12, it says, It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne, 
to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And it's at this point when the will of the Pharaoh is broken. And so he actually comes to Moses and he tells Moses, okay, you can now go. You can leave. And this is what it says, verse 31. He called for Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as ye have said. And take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so they can finally leave Egypt. They're finally free. And so today the Passover is still practiced by many Jews. They no longer sacrifice a lamb because they don't have a temple, but they do eat a lamb and other symbolic foods to help them remember the miracle of their deliverance from their captivity in Egypt. And they look back in remembrance, and yet the Passover is also a way for them to look forward. You see, they look forward to a future Messiah. That word Messiah means king. And they look forward to the day when they will have this future king in Israel. And they also, at the very end of Passover today, many Jews say something to the effect of, we look forward to the day when we can have a temple again in Jerusalem. And so the Passover is central to Judaism. It's a really big deal. And as Latter-day Saints, we also celebrate the Passover in our own way. You see, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus's last supper with his disciples was held when Passover was held. And so the sacrament is the continuation of the Passover experience, where we eat in remembrance of the Lamb of God who was slain. In John's narrative, in the Gospel of John, it reads a little bit different than the synoptics. You see, John has Jesus crucified when the lambs are killed for the Passover. And so in John's narrative, Jesus is literally the Lamb of God that was slain. And so he's crucified on a different day the day before the Passover. And so as Christians today, we look at the Passover as the sacrament because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, in my family, we celebrate Passover. This is just something that I like to do with my wife and my children to remember the Savior and to kind of use it as a teaching device. It's just a fun tradition that we do in our family. But as the church, we have the sacrament. We are not commanded to celebrate Passover. But together, she and I sit down with our kids, and we talk about what the symbols of Passover mean. And there's not really one set way to do it, because uh, a lot of this stuff isn't codified in the text. And so there's a lot of tradition in Judaism, and so there's a lot of freedom with how to do it. But when we do it, we actually sit down, and we have a meal, and we drink the grape juice at a certain point, and we have the heroset, and we have the bitter herbs, and we teach them about the deliverance from Egypt. Also, as a side note, we also show a little bit from the very beginning of the film, Prince of Egypt, to kind of set the mood and to kind of get into the spirit of what happened and how important it was that they be delivered and how God remembered the Israelites. One of the fun things we like to do with Passover, there's this part where you take a piece of matzah bread And the matzah bread is this bread that isn't leavened. You see, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they eat unleavened bread because they're in a hurry to get out. So you take a piece of this matzah bread and you wrap it in a white cloth, and it's called the afikoman, and you hide it. 
first one to find it gets a prize. And when they all come back after looking for it, having discovered it, we sit down and, and talk about, okay, what does this mean? This piece of bread that's wrapped in a white linen and it's hidden and we must find it. And by now they know, right? We've done this every year. They know, well, that's the Savior. The Savior is one that we must find. And as we find him, then we are found. The Savior knows us. He knows who we are. And we can feel of his spirit and remember him. So now I want to go back and focus in on the description of the lamb and specifically on the lamb's blood and show you how the lamb that they sacrificed represented the Savior. Now, what's interesting is in Exodus 12, we read about the lamb that was to be killed. And if you look in verse 5, it says that the lamb is without blemish, a male of the first year. And its blood is going to save Israel. I mean, that's in Exodus 12, verse 7, and 13, and 22, and 23. It's over and over again. And in the Hebrew of Exodus 12, 13, it says that the blood will be an ot or a semion in the Greek. And that is the word for token or sign. And that's an important word because that word is associated with temple, but it's something that only the giver and the receiver identify or know. And the blood is that token. And I think that the gospel writers get it. They understand that the blood of the lamb is what is going to save us. It's the blood of Christ that is the token or the sign that will save us. And not only the blood will save us, but verse 46 says that they're not to break a bone thereof. So this is a lamb that when it's killed, they don't break any of the bones, but its body is broken because it is killed and it is consumed. And John, in chapter 19 of his gospel, he tells us that when the Savior was crucified, that not one bone was broken when he died on the cross. Now, that was not the typical way that crucifixion worked. The way crucifixion worked in the time of the Romans was if they had to get the individual off the cross and they weren't dead yet, they would break the legs of the person suffering so that they would suffocate. But Jesus had already passed away. And John's very particular to show us that image because John knows the Exodus and he knows the story of the Passover. It had surprised them. They were surprised that he was already dead. They expected to have to break his bones. Yeah. So John makes a big deal out of that. I like John's perspective that he portrays Jesus as the Lamb of God. In fact, right out of the gate, in the very beginning of his Gospels, Jesus is identified as the Lamb. He's the one that saves us from destruction. He's yeah. the one that saves us from death. He's the protective power that shields and protects us from harm. Jesus is the Lamb that saved them from the destroying angel. Yeah, so that's really important. Now, what isn't important as much, but I'm a nerd, so I'm just going to geek out briefly. But this is a family experience. Verse 8 says that it's roast with fire. The Passover lamb is roast with fire, and it's not boiled, verse 9. And it's eaten with families. But in Deuteronomy 16, this becomes a national pilgrimage. What happens is Deuteronomy is a rewriting of this story of these traditions. And so the Passover becomes a national pilgrimage. And so in Jesus's day, you took the lamb and you went up to Jerusalem. But in Moses's day, in, in early Israel tradition, this was a family experience. Now it gets more complicated 
just know that it's in the slides and it's in the show notes and you can go and read it. But there's a lot of complexity going on with the Passover. And to be short in speaking, what it shows me is that once again, the Bible has a textual history and things were added to it. But I believe that Exodus 12 is the earliest thing that we have. It's a family experience. You're roasting it over a fire and you're remembering that God is good and that he's delivered you. And my take on all of this is that the early prophets knew that the lamb would be this God that would come down and deliver them. And that's exactly the the place where the Christian writers are going to situate this story, that it's all about Jesus. Now, there's something else that's happening here that's going to become a major motif throughout the scriptures, and that is this idea of being saved by a mark. They mark their houses with the blood of the lamb, and that mark saves them. When Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians in Ezekiel chapter 9, you go read chapter 9 and you'll see that once again the righteous were saved by a mark. And then in Revelation, with the great destruction in the latter days, the cleansing of the earth, the righteous will be saved by a mark in their forehead. In Egypt, at the Passover, if the house had a forehead, that's where they put the blood. They put the blood on the posts and then above the door as if they were putting it on their forehead. And then in Revelation, the destroying angels are told to wait until we have time to mark the righteous on the forehead. And it is the blood of the Lamb that is the mark that saves us. And so that symbolism of putting a mark on us, marking ourselves for a blessing— Those of you who have been to sacred places, I would invite you to think about the word anointing. To anoint is to mark yourself to receive a blessing. And we anoint ourselves by saying, Jesus, I want your blessing, therefore I'm going to put your mark on me. I'm going to put your mark on my house. I'm going to put your mark on my family. This family is a believer of Christ. Alma will say in the Book of Mormon, have you received his image in your countenance? I mark myself with the way he lived his life. I mark myself with his kindness so that the world sees him when they look at me. In Revelation chapter 9, when the destruction is unleashed, it's those who have not the mark in their forehead that will be destroyed. So there's a major message here in the Passover of things to come in our day, and are we marking our families with the blood of the Lamb? I like that. I think that's important. Next, they borrow the the jewels of the Egyptians. That's verse 35, but it happens over and over again. And it talks about that they lent them things as they required. If you want to get into the weeds of this and and have a geek out moment, go to the show notes. We're just not going to talk about it for this podcast, but I do want to talk about verse 37. It says, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled on verse 37. And the idea is if that's how many men left that were like these men that were ready for war, that there were probably two and a half million Israelites that left this area. And I'm not going to take it that way. I think that word that's translated as thousand, elef, can mean a thousand. It certainly can, but it can also mean other things. It can mean a company, or it can mean a family, or it can even mean a leader. That word 
There's a lot going on there. One scholar writes, it's plain that in other passages in the Hebrew Bible, there are clear examples where Eleph makes no sense if it's translated like thousand, but good sense if it's otherwise translated as leader. And so some scholars put the numbers of the Israelites leaving at a much smaller number, perhaps even as low as 20,000. I'm not going to give you a number. I don't look at this as 600,000 men with two and a half million Israelites. Now, some people do. A lot of people take the Bible super literal and they see the King James as kind of like, that's the perfect translation. But just know that Eleph has a lot of ambiguity. And so you decide. But look in verse 38. Verse 38 talks about a mixed multitude going out with them. And then it says in verse 45 that a foreigner or a hired servant is not to eat the Passover. Now, why would that commandment even be in there if there wasn't a mixed multitude? Why would there be a commandment that we can't have people who aren't Israel eating the Passover when you guys are leaving on the Exodus if there weren't any other people? And so I think it's a really good reading to look at this and say that there were people that were not of Israel. And we kind of see it again in verse 48. When a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised. So the text is opening up these ideas. Now, isn't that the Abrahamic covenant is to go teach the world and gather them? Shouldn't Abraham have brought some of the Egyptians with them out of Egypt? That's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. And I love the fact that there seems to have been some Egyptians who were moved by what happened and are now going with the Israelites. Yeah, I think the text invites that. If you look in verse 40, it says that they were in Egypt 430 years. Now, remember in the passage of Genesis 15, verse 13, Abraham is talking to Jehovah who tells him that your seed will be in Egypt for 400 years. The Septuagint is going to say 400 years. And then we get to Exodus 6, 18 through 20. That's last week's podcast. But in that text, it says that they're there for four generations. So that's not going to line up. Four generations is a lot shorter than 400 years. So I just sit in this space of ambiguity and understanding that the text has lots of complexity and editing and a history. And so if we try to make the Bible, everything perfectly match up, it doesn't. But just know it was a period of time. I think that's probably a really safe way to look at it. And then when you go to the 13th chapter, we read about the time period when this was. This is in the spring, verse 4. And then we read once again that they're to go, in verse 5, to a land of milk and honey. We've spoken about this before, but just remember that milk and honey are these images connected with fertility and God's bounteous blessings and that he can make things right and that we can come back to the tree. I see the milk and honey image as an image of the tree of life and connected to that image of wisdom and divine foresight. And then in the eighth verse, verse eight and nine of the text, we read again about this sign that's going to be between your eyes and in your hand. And these are what today are commonly called in the West phylacteries or tephilim. These are sacred texts that are put in leather boxes and that are used in morning prayers in Judaism to pray and remember who God is. And God is inviting the Israelites to remember him. And this is an important image. And we're not going to cross the Red Sea in this chapter. We're going to approach it. But in the 13th chapter, they go once again with this token in verse 16, upon their hand and the frontlets between their eyes, and they go by the strength of the Lord. And they go up harnessed in verse 18. In other words, they're ready for battle, and they take the bones of Joseph in verse 19. And the image ends in the 13th chapter 
with this cloud. It says that it's a pillar of cloud that leads them in the way. By night, it's a pillar of fire. And that pillar is going to be put between them and the Egyptians, because next week when we talk about Exodus 14 through 17, Pharaoh's not done with them yet, and he's coming after him. But the image that I want to just leave us with is this idea that God is with them, but he is inviting them to do something, and that something is to remember. And I think that's really what the Passover is. And I think the Christian writers are trying to show us, hey, that's Jesus, And if we remember him, that's like what we do in the sacrament, which is very much connected to these ideas in Exodus. So the Lord sets this up as a yearly tradition. Every single year on the 10th day of this month, you're going to start to remember. And so he starts saying, verse 17 of chapter 12, ye shall observe the feast. End of verse 25, ye shall keep this service. And then when we get into chapter 13, he's really emphatic. Notice verse 3, remember this day. In verse 5, he says, keep this service. In verse 10, he says, keep this ordinance from this season from year to year. And so the Lord says, look, I'm going to do something mighty, and I'm going to save you, and we're going to do it together, and Jesus is going to be involved. You need to remember this in every generation. You need to teach your children to remember this. So we find ourselves coming to the very end of the Book of Mormon, where Moroni is pleading with us to remember the great things that God has done. And I think implied in that is if we always remember that God has done great things, we will hold on to the hope that he will yet do many great things. We now sit in a wonderful tradition. Jeremiah will say, someday it will no longer be spoken of that God lives who saved them from Egypt. We will no longer look at the landmark of what happened in Egypt as the testament of God's majesty. It will be the miracles of the restoration that we will point to. Jeremiah says that compared to what God will do in the restoration, the miracles of Egypt will pale in comparison. And someday we will no longer brag about the God who freed the Israelites from Egypt. We will boast of the God who freed the lost tribes and restored Israel. So now the Latter-day Saints have a reason to love this story in Egypt. And we have a reason to remember, as a people, the Latter-day Saints do not worship the Passover anymore. We do not keep the Passover, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't remember the Passover. We should remember what God did in Egypt in saving the Israelites, because if we remember that, we will have hope that he will once again save us from the world in which we live. And he will come and redeem the people, and he will gather us and bring us home. And even if you don't look at it as a second coming Latter-day Saint motif, we need to remember that Jesus will save us from all of the bondages of our lives. And the sacrament is a great way for us to weekly have the Passover so that we can remember this God that we worship, this mighty God who has delivered us from sin and death and will deliver us in every way. He will be completely victorious. Every single time we participate in the sacrament, we hear the word remember, 
or remembrance four times. That is one of the most sacred words in the English language. And so I'm going to leave you with that plea to remember through the words of Helaman to his sons, Nephi and Lehi, where he says, and now my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty wind, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, like Egypt beat upon the Israelites, that was my insertion, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Remember who it was that saved Israel from destruction and is going to save you from all of the burdens and all of the Egypts of your life eventually. Remember him. And with that, next week we will cover Exodus 14 through 17. So we'll cross the Red Sea, we'll see the waters of Mara, and we'll see the manna. Thanks for sharing your time with us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.